the topic tonight is well, we were talking about the fact that there's a total lack of education, and so we wanted to bring some topics to the forefront, not necessarily take a deep dive in every single one of them. We could decide to take a deep dive in one or two or three, but not necessarily yeah. all of them. But but the topics is if only I knew. If only I knew about team disposition, if only I knew about the rift torpedo, if only I knew about the CDA, if only I knew about pensions versus RSPs, if only I knew about RCA, if only I knew about passive income grind, if only I knew about tax on passive income inside the corp or the small business allowance or the erosion of that small business allowance because of TOPI. I think what we should talk about for sure, because I've ran into this today, like it breaks my heart, like it literally broke my heart. Is this is a joke? physician. Th this is a physician who reached out to me, you know, to the CPPP. And uh, so we started talking, we had a meeting today, so we can't really do the pension plan. Uh, but in talking to him and his accountant who was there online, you know, we said, well, you can't do the pension plan, but nothing stops you from doing the RCA, right. the retirement compensation arrangement. And and as we were talking, a few things, his his accountant says, well, he doesn't have a T4. He's always taken dividend. So if you've always taken dividend, you can't do an RCA. There is a very popular idiom that says ignorance is bliss. It used to say that a person who does not know about a problem does not worry about it. But I think this is wrong. It's equivalent to saying, you know what, I don't know about this new medication that will protect you against your kidneys and uh, heart attacks if you're a diabetic. Or it's someone saying, I don't think I need to learn about this new medication that will prevent you from having a stroke if you have atrial fibrillation. You know, I don't think that would go really, really well in our type of professions. And so ignorance is not bliss. And so if you never keep up with the news or don't care with the troubles that you're going to face financially, then you will not be able to deal with it uh, prophylactically or preventatively. And unfortunately, that could lead to you losing millions and millions over time. So ignorance is not bliss. You do not know what you do not know. And more importantly, your accountant does not know what your accountant does not know. And sometimes your financial advisors also don't. It is up to you to figure out what you need to know. If only I knew is a topic today learn about these concepts that maybe you've never heard of or even your accountant or advisor never told you about. But knowing these concepts are crucial to your financial future and the protection of your future self. How's my financial health, Doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for healthcare professionals. 
where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Okay, so welcome back, everybody, to How Is My Financial Health Doc podcast, and I am your host, Vuketran. I am so happy to be back with you today. Today's show is a potpourri of things that I wish I knew when I was younger. But you know what? These are the things I wish I knew even now and as I continue to age, because these are fundamental concepts that are extremely important to your financial well-being, whether it's on the personal side or on the professional incorporated side. To help me with this particular podcast and potpourri discussion, I'm back with my friend, Jamie List. Jamie, uh, welcome back to the show. Now, Jamie, you've been on this show before, uh, but it was quite some time ago. So help the audience remember who you are, what you do. Well, thanks, Hu, and thanks for having me back. Um, for those who've been listening, uh, you know, uh, religiously for a while, I think this is my third guest spot. And we had a double episode about incorporation and insurance, uh, probably be about a year ago, uh, would be the most recent one. Uh, so I'm a financial advisor, portfolio manager, uh, wealth manager, uh, I come under a variety of different topics. And we help, you know, middle net worth, and I would say sort of the emerging affluent client base that we have kind of chart their way through the challenge of growing their wealth responsibly. Um, we have business owners and incorporated professionals largely as clients and a good, uh, also healthy dose, if you will, of um, sort of senior, call it senior executives. And really the, the 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 reason that those are all different is they're they're similar in many ways from a tax planning point of view. Um, somebody who works for a large company, let's say IBM, uh, they're paid through a T4 and they don't have a lot of options. And so I think what we're going to talk about today is how the physician in particular, who really runs a small business of one, has the ability to go through. And if they really do understand all the levers they can pull, they have a, a really great uh, menu to choose from of planning options to kind of get around some of the issues that are challenging everybody in accumulating wealth. Thank you. Thank you very much for that introduction. So the reason why... Uh, I invited Jamie back is because Jamie has a breadth of understanding, experience, and knowledge with the topics that we're going to talk about today. So we're going to talk about things that I wish I knew. And what are these? What are these topics? One, one, the concept of deemed disposition. We're going to talk about the RIF. What is a RIF and what is a RIF torpedo? Then we're going to move into pensions and why pensions are stronger than RSPs. We're going to move into the passive income grind inside the corporation. We're going to talk about tax on passive income inside the corporation. We're going to talk about small business allowance and the erosion of that and how the integration of tax with within the corporation and within the personal sphere Finally, we're going to talk about the retirement compensation arrangement. Now, guys, listeners, I understand this is a potpourri and may not be all related to each other, but you will see that at the end of the podcast, it all makes sense. It all comes together in a certain way. But we're going to talk about the different concepts and how all these fit together at the end if we're able to do so. Just to let the audience know, this 
podcast has been divided into two episodes because of the length of the discussion and the dialogue. So uh, make sure you listen to part number two to listen to the wrap up. So let's just start with the first concept, which I think is fundamental. And believe it or not, guys, I've only understood this concept about eight to nine years ago. And I'm I'm 49, okay? So I'm 49. So I've lived 40 years of my life not knowing this concept. And yet I've been paying taxes since I was the age of 26. So I've paid taxes for 14 years and never understood or never knew about what deemed disposition is. So Jamie, let's start with that. Help us understand what this concept is. So it... Uh... So a deemed disposition is a, it's a pretty fundamental tax concept that affects everybody in lots of ways, but it will affect everybody because the only thing that are guaranteed is death and taxes. And in fact, the deemed disposition kind of comes together at the same time. So when, uh, let's just go with one person for now. So when one individual owns an asset that is not exempted from tax in another way. So a good example would be your principal residence doesn't have any tax uh, on it when you sell it. So any asset like a cottage that is a capital asset um, that has grown, when you pass away, you are deemed to have sold that for fair market value, or you are deemed to have disposed of it at its fair market value. That day, you will owe the tax on that transaction, or more importantly, your estate will. And uh, And then once that has occurred, and the tax has been paid, then you are therefore allowed to pass that asset on to you know, your beneficiaries. There are other examples where a, deem, a deeming occurs, but that is the one that will affect most taxpayers most often. But notably, if you own something that is not tax exempt, you know, like I said, a, a principal residence, and you have accumulated some degree of wealth, you're going to have to deal with the deemed disposition concept at some point uh, in your life, or more importantly, at some point planning for the end of your life. But that, that's very important because you, the last sentence, planning for the end of your life. Many of us physicians have never thought that we're going to die. <laughs> I keep saying this all the time, mm. that physicians live and behave like teenagers that we're going to live forever. Uh, and the unfortunate truth is that we all die. It's not 99.9%, it's 100%. And unfortunately, we have colleagues who pass away unexpectedly at the age of 50, 55, 60, whatever it may be. And so the concept of planning for the time when I die is very important because when I die may not necessarily be when I'm 89 or 90. The time when I die may be 55. And so if I haven't planned for that, then it's a huge mistake because I leave a lot of money on the table. And the money I leave on the table is obviously all the taxes that have to be paid at, at death. When should someone plan for the deemed disposition at death? In my mind, they should plan for it as soon as possible. I mean, I'm not planning for my death, but I'm planning for the tax consequences of my death. And so when should someone plan for that? You know, the insurance industry sometimes gets a bad rap for for being, you know, pushy, et cetera. But when you can find a, a, a good, responsible um, minded insurance professional, that and or a financial planner, there is a there is sort of a continual 
there is the ability and there my recommendation, I guess, is to continually plan for called the end of your life. But but when you're young and you have a young family, let's say, and you have a mortgage and you haven't earned all the money you're going to earn, the planning becomes a lot more about really uh, contingent risk management. What if something happens to me? When you have passed midlife and you have gotten, uh, you, you know, you've earned the bulk of what you're going to earn, you have spent a lot, you've raised your children, you have them off to hopefully university, um, you know, mortgage paid off, those things that are that are the big items that we need to take care of. Now you really are past that point and you can start to look to a different horizon. You may or may not still have a need to cover contingent risks, i.e. what happens if I die tomorrow, but you really need to start thinking about what happens when I die at age 80, 85, 90, or potentially even before. So your deemed disposition thinking just continually grows as you begin to accumulate assets or, or more importantly, as you pass stages of life, your estate taxes are really not a big issue when you're young. And if you haven't accumulated a lot, your concern is to make sure that your obligations are taken care of. If you're young and you have a young family, make sure that your income is replaced. Those are the responsibilities that you have later on. And again, it, it feathers into your planning. It's not a day. It's not an age. It's not a benchmark. It just becomes a thing that is more and more important that your end of life, if you will, planning or your estate planning, the when you die, not if you die planning, is going to involve understanding what are all the taxes that are payable. A big one for most people is going to be deemed disposition if you have, again, like those assets. Another one we'll get to in a second, which is what happens with the registered assets that you have. Have you created a problem for yourself there? Real estate, there's a bunch of different types of assets that all have nuances to them, but they are all either subject to an immediate income tax or an immediate deemed disposition tax, which is a capital gain. Right. The deemed disposition problem at death, this is deemed disposition at death, is probably for most physicians, the biggest tax bill that they will ever have to pay. Uh, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. And, and again, like the mechanics of it, it may help to understand, but the mechanics of it is, you know, the moment that you die, um, you see, this, this seems like a repetitive, but the moment that you die from as a taxpayer, you cease to exist. And immediately, notionally, and then more formally later on, when you file your taxes, an estate is created, which is a separate taxpayer. And so the best way of understanding how that deemed disposition works is it's not just a, it really is a sale of all of the things that you own from the living person. So when I die, all of my assets that are owned by Jamie List will immediately be sold for fair market value to the estate of Jamie List. And that transaction creates this deeming. It's a valuation date. And that really, that transaction is what everyone needs to understand. The mechanics of filing a return at death is what creates this uh, deemed decision. And there really is no, there is no way to plan around it. Yeah, You can plan for it, but you cannot plan for it not to happen. Oh, <laughs> unless you're a physician who thinks you'll live forever. Right. <clears throat> yes, unless you would like to defy the two guaranteed <laughs> things in life, which are death and taxes. Okay, so deemed disposition at death, we talked about, but there are other deemed disposition. I think there is also when you become a non-resident and you decide to be living abroad. So uh, when I retire, I want to move to Florida. I want to move to Portugal. There's a deemed disposition there as well, correct? Correct. There's a deemed disposition. So there's, a, there's the less frequent, but equally equal, exactly the same tax treatment. So when you leave the country forever, by the way, it's it's a forever thing. It's not a temporary. 
So you can choose to keep your tax status, but if you decide to leave Canada and cease to be a Canadian taxpayer, you will file taxes in your final year as though you had died. And so there will be deemed dispositions. There are also deemed dispositions if you transfer assets between individual and corporation. So there's there, there are really, I think the deemed disposition rules or the concept of a deemed disposition is anytime there's a transaction real or implied, and the way the government thinks is if you stop paying taxes all of a sudden, either dying or leaving the country, that's a transaction to them and they want to take their valuation and they want to get their final cut of whatever they're owed. And then they can, you know, you can either leave the country, obviously, or the, the assets that you leave to your family after you die will pass to them through your estate. Perfect. That is a good, good wrap up for the concept of deemed disposition. So now let's come back to another concept you kind of alluded to, which is the RIF, the Registered Retirement Income Fund. So this is a, a continuation of the RRSP. Now, many of us, middle income, high income, are contributing to our retirement plan via the RRSP. And that's all we've known about for many, many years because the government and the banks tell me that before February 28th, I have to contribute to an RSP and all the commercials come out and pound on my head to say, hey, Vu, don't forget your RSPs. Now, I've been I've been hearing about that my entire life. What I've never heard of is the RIF. And I've now called it the RIF torpedo because it really torpedoes your entire plan. At least in my mind, that that's what I call it. So help us understand the RIF. So the RIF is the you know, the twin sibling of the RSP, as you said. So an RSP is an accumulation vehicle. The RIF is a deaccumulation vehicle. So the rules behind the RSP are, I'm only allowed to put a certain amount in every year, but right now it's about $29,000 per year and I get a tax deduction. So it is a, it's deductible. So if I put a dollar in, I save a dollar, I'd say 50 cents a tax at about 53 in Ontario at the highest rate. Once you reach a certain age, well, in fact, once you are, wanting to retire, and you must, before you uh, turn 71, or the year in which you turn 71, you must at that point convert your RRSP into its sibling, the RIF. The RIF is a deaccumulation vehicle. It has the same properties. Both the RRSP and the RIF accumulate or grow tax-free, but the RIF has a different rule. Instead of a maximum you can put in, there is a minimum that you must take out every single year. So starting as soon as that, um, as soon as you start the RIF or when you must start the RIF at 71, you must take out income of minimum every year. And those minimums are a percentage of the balance on December 31st of the previous year. And that percentage rises every year until you're 90. And when you hit 90, you must take it 20%. I believe it's 20% per year. Uh, in fact, those numbers may have changed a bit. Uh, but, but functionally, the idea is once you get to a certain age, 90 or 95, you are going to be withdrawing a significant amount of that balance. Really, there's two torpedoes that come out of this, this uh, the mechanics. <laughs> Absolutely. Make my right? day even worse. I thought there was one torpedo. Now you're telling me two. Well, there Absolutely. are. I mean, go, so, go for it. So the first one is, the first one, I think the one you were thinking of is this estate planning problem. <clears throat> so if we've been successful and we've saved wisely, and, and more importantly, if we have a high income and we live modestly, relative to that income, and we are saving more than we need. If we have multiple planning options, you know, if we're incorporated or we have spouses or, or um, uh, different uh, options, 
the riff often becomes a planning problem. And that planning problem is it is not a capital asset. There is no deemed disposition of the riff when you pass away. So if you have a dollar or a hundred dollars or a thousand or a million or $10 million in your riff, when you pass away the day you die, so that date of death, you are deemed to have not disposed, but to have paid all of 100% of the money that's in there in that one year. And what that means is you don't get the chance to create a, you know, a, a cascade of tax rates, et cetera. You just get a lump sum of money in that into your estate in that final year. And it's going to, in Ontario, functionally, all of that's going to be paid out at 53%. So that's your first torpedo. The second torpedo is one that you need to think about if you're planning for people who are at an advanced age, and particularly people at an advanced age who have had the fortunate outcome of being able to live off different assets and take the minimum of the riff out every year. But once they get to sort of mid 80s and, and into their 90s, they're forced to take out significant amounts of money every single year. And now you have kind of living torpedo on an annual basis where you're going to be paying out significant sums of money. I would argue that's a rare, but it is definitely a, sorry, a rare event. But it's definitely a possibility if you do have other planning options. And let's say you have two physicians who have you know, saved wisely their entire life and all they've used is their RSP slash RIF, maybe a corporation, it's quite possible that they could have planned and saved and spent wisely and have very, very large balances as they hit their mid-80s when those uh, minimum payments start to become a significant issue. And you cannot, and therefore it confounds not just taking money from your RIF, but it confounds all of your other tax planning because you you're one of the things we defend, sorry, depend on when we're planning for taxes is that concept of gradual rates. And when you have a huge amount of money coming out of your RIF every year, those gradual rates just, just become irrelevant. Um, so that's the sort of the second type of torpedo, um, more a death by a thousand cuts torpedo, but it's still uh, it's still something to, to worry about when you're planning. And, and I, I call this a torpedo because most of us, you know, watch these commercials and say, oh, I'm gonna save so much money. And our accountants, our accountants say, save your money, save your money in the RSP. But nobody tells us about the second part. So I've saved 10 million in my RSPs. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm going to have 10 million. Uh, that's not exactly true. And so that's where the torpedo comes is, is that we haven't put that in our mind. We thought that if we save it in an RSP, mm -hmm. that we at the end, when I have 10 million, they actually have access to 10 million. People forget, one, it will be taxed, but two, the entire 10 million, have I not used it and I passed away, I don't actually leave 10 million to my children. I actually leave half of it or a little bit less than half. And that's where the torpedo concept comes in is that, wait a minute, where did that come from? How come I've never heard about it? And and to be honest, I've never heard about it until, you know, eight, nine years ago. And I, I was 40 at that time. And so it really did hit me like a torpedo. And yet I've had an accountant since I was the age of 26. So the question is, where did, where did I go wrong for 14 years? And to be honest, a lot of my colleagues still don't know about this rift torpedo. I think the physicians that are listening are going to be, are going to be those who are at the very least sort of present minded enough to go and explore some of these concepts. So a great way of exploring this for you I mean, for each individual it would be for a good financial planning can can work this out and show it and demonstrate what the cost 
of the various strategies are going to be. Um, and if you are, again, lucky enough to be able to accumulate lots of assets, understanding what this the, the RIF does, which is a great tool for the average Canadian, but by virtue of sort of of the privilege that, that the physicians and medical professionals generally have, really not a lot of physicians and medical professionals are average Canadians from a tax point of view. And so the advice is a little bit different when you get into the upper end of that income sphere. Um, and it's not as good a tool for the holistic approach that we want to take for planning. want to thank you for what you've just said there because it brings into I'm going to diverge a little bit this last sentence that you said or this concept that you said that the RSP and the RIF is a very good tool for the middle income not so much a good tool for high income and and this is important because of all the things that we hear currently out there do it yourself invest in a RSP account, invest in a non-reg account and do it yourself. Do it yourself. You don't need anybody. Just do the couch potato and buy the S&P 500 and then let it accumulate. And look at that graph. Oh my God, you're going to get 5 million. And people who do DIY do that. Unfortunately, <clears throat> when you're in a DIY mentality, you get stuck in a DIY mentality and you forget about the planning. And so at the end, you look at that graph, you say, oh my God, I've got 5 million. When at the end of the day, you actually don't have 5 million, you have less than that. And so I, I, what you said there in relation to the DIY out there, it is really a caution because the, the rift torpedo, or at least that concept of rift torpedo, that concept of deemed disposition is not really talked about when we talk about DIY doing it yourself you know i mean the theory of doing it yourself is a strong one because you can buy an index fund and you can in theory beat half the market and then you are paying lower fees so you're probably better than half the market so if you truly can be a diy investor and by that i mean you are disciplined in your approach then that is that's actually doable i would argue that not doable is planning on your own um the 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 knowledge that it takes to acquire um, sometimes it's simply acquiring knowledge through transactions. You you can you can study and learn as much as you want to, and 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 if you're an accountant, you certainly do that. Um, but the planning professionals, etc., can bring concepts to the table that you just would not see. Um, you know, but for the efforts of a guy like Yuvu who tries to bring them forward, and again, what we're doing today is identifying what they are, really not explaining how to implement necessarily some of these strategies. So. Um, so yeah, getting out of a DIY, do it yourself, DIY mentality, uh, when it comes, as soon as you leave your portfolio, if you're convicted to doing your own investment management, as to what you said, be at least wise enough to find a professional. And there are fee for service planning professionals. Um, there are, there are good accountants out there who some, in some cases also have their CFP certified financial planning designation. Those are the kind of people you want to engage on your team to help you understand where you are deficient outside of doing your own investment management, which is very different than doing your own financial planning and estate planning and tax planning. Wonderful. Wonderful. I, I really love how you, you made that distinction where you can DIY your investment, but you can't DIY your planning. 
And I think that that's a very important message. So now let's move on to other concepts because we're not going to take deep dive in every single one of them. So now we're moving into the sphere of the of the incorporation. So the first thing I want to talk about is let's talk about tax integration. What is this thing? What is this tax integration? Um, it has to do with should I take a, ta a salary or should I take a dividend? Uh, my accountant tells me to take dividend only. Oh, my accountant tells me to take uh, T4 only, or my accountant tells me to take the blend. Like, which one's the right answer? And this has to come with tax integration. So let's talk a little bit about that. Tax integration is a principle upon which the Tax Act is supposed to be written in function. And what it means is that a, that a dollar of income earned should maintain a, that characteristic after all taxes are paid on that dollar of income. So the great example would be, uh, well, it's a complex example, but dividends, when you receive a dividend from investing in, let's say, a Canadian bank, you get an eligible dividend and you think the tax rate is lower, but, if, but it's not because upstream tax has already been paid by, in this case, the bank stock that we own, so the bank, on the income. As a result of that tax being paid, certain um, there's certain mechanics which recognize the tax has already been paid once that dividend is put out. When that dividend is put out, there is a credit that's given to the dividend receiver. There is also tax that's reclaimed once the dividends are filed by that company. So there's a there's a there's a long mechanism in the case of dividends that get us to basically an equal amount of tax being paid on both sides of the of the coin. I think how this applies, and I think how how we want to think about it is. The way the Tax Act is working now is it's not as easy because of how taxes, even recent changes with what happened in 2017, and and we'll get to some of the other changes, but it's not as easy anymore to say specifically, it's better to take dividends, it's better to take income, it's better to take this or that. There is a, the, the, the margins are a lot smaller. And when you're looking at the whole picture, sometimes it may feel like dividends cost less in taxes. But they 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 may or may not, depending on where that money's coming from, how it is. So that's sort of the principle and the sort of I guess the most relevant example I can think of. And I think we're going to get into the capital dividend account later. So that's another one we can we can reach back to this topic later. But the net of it is there is no right answer because part of your question was, do I take dividends? Do I take income? How do I how do I do this? There is no right answer at all. Um, it really depends on so many different variables. Um, and, and the reason I bring this up is that, you know, and this is, this is common in, in the, in the industry and in, in accounting is that if you take dividends only from your corporation, you pay yourself personally in dividends that you pay much less taxes at the end of the day. Versus if I take a T4 income, then you pay more taxes. This may have been true prior to 2014, but since 2014, because of the tax integration and the purpose of the tax integration is to make sure that whether you pay yourself in dividend or you pay yourself in T4, that at the end of the day, when all set is done net net, you're paying approximately about the same. Um, and so to your point, you know, the the common <clears throat> the common concept that have been floating for many years is that if you pay yourself dividend only, it's the best because you pay much less taxes, no longer applies so well anymore in the new 
tax integration era. And I think that's really the point that we wanted to make today. Yeah, I mean, I, I, another way of thinking about it might be when you're when you're thinking about dividends, this is not strictly true, but fundamentally it's it's a good measure. You can't pay a dividend until you've earned income corporately. If you've earned income corporately, you have already paid tax corporately. So if you're paying yourself a dividend and you're getting it at 40% and your normal tax rate is 53, and again, this we're in Ontario, remember that to get that dividend, the corporation's already paid tax. So it's not just 40%. It's 40% plus whatever it costs to earn the money corporately. And guess what? In Ontario, the small business rate at, at, at the low end is around 10 to 12%. Add that to 40 and you're at about 52, which is about 1% away from 53 so, and when you work it all out, that's that principle of integration coming home to roost. It feels like less tax. Your personal cash flow is higher, but it's not actually less tax. Thank you. And that's that's important because we're we're often misled by the 40% and we haven't thought the upstream tax. So now let's come back to more to more concepts within the corporation. Uh, so let's talk about the question of pensions that are done inside a corporation versus the, the question of RSPs done personally. What are the things that we can say that is a misconception uh, about these two uh, entities when it comes to personal and corporation? For me, in my mind, the first thing, the first thing I want to say is because we are so inundated by commercials and marketing about RSPs, the vast majority of the population, it doesn't matter whether you're a physician, dentist, whoever it is, all we think is RSPs and we haven't thought about different other options. Uh, and so pensions is just another option, but it's on it's on the corporate side, at least in my mind, uh, not many people know about pensions. Yeah, it's funny. There's not a lot of misconceptions about pensions for physicians because there is not a lot of knowledge that, that the opportunity exists. So the misconceptions, let's say about an RSP, we kind of have already spoken about. I think one of the largest, one of the biggest bets that 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 high income earners make on the RSP is that it's going to it's going to do everything that they need it to do, and they never really understand what that implicate that implies. It may be a great way of of getting you know a deduction now that certainly helps with cash flow when you're young, and again. Sometimes this stuff is just necessary and there's no harm in it. But if you do end up you know, finding yourself being much more financially successful later in life than you were at the beginning, it's okay to switch gears. But if all you're doing is planning with that RSP and that then turns into the riff, the, the thing you've done is create a big problem later on. So the misconception to, to your point is that it is a one size fits all tool. It's a great tool. Well, it's not. When we're walking through a financial plan with our clients, we kind of walk through, we, we, we show them that the mandate changes once we can prove to them that retirement is fully funded. You sit down and you do a financial plan with somebody and you say, hey, great, look what's happening here. What you told me you wanted to do in retirement, we can accomplish. Not only can we accomplish it, but you actually have a surplus left over. And now we have a second challenge. That second challenge is to maintain as much of that as possible without it eroding, you know, there. And then of course the, the other two challenges we have for both of those are if we can possibly make those numbers larger by prudent planning steps, that's great. So the RRSP is great 
to get you to retirement. It gives you a deduction. It gives you tax-free sheltering. Once you start to retire, you have the reverse problem almost. You have a forced income, and then you have this potential big tax problem when you pass away. So that's, I can say, the misconception is it's not a one-size-fits-all tool. It doesn't solve all the problems, and it, it does give you some of the things you need for a good plan, but it doesn't kind of, it's not a, it's not a complete tool. So moving to the pension, the pension is, and, and when we say the pension, there are, there are a number of different structures that you can put in place uh, using your corporation to fund your retirement. The one that is probably the way of describing it is, I don't want to say the best, but the one's the most flexible is the personal pension plan, the PPP. There is also an IPP, which is very, very similar. On the surface, they will look similar. They will look identical. Um, the difference is that the way that the, the PPP is written and conceived of and, and papered, it allows a lot of flexibility in how it's funded. It allows a lot of flexibility in how it's paid out. It also allows the potential for using it as an estate planning tool if you have an ability to have your kids work for you. And they can then join that pension. So it's a it's a tool that allows more than just one person to participate, potentially, as long as they qualify. Whereas an RSP and a RIF, it's just you. With a nuance maybe of a spousal RSP, which is just your spouse. Again, not a misconception, but to know that there is a vehicle or there are a series of vehicles that are you know good, better, best, that are pensions that are funded by the corporation, and I would make the point, actually, Vusu, you said um, when you sort of opened this section, there's a personal and then there's pensions done in the corporation. I would make it actually really clear, I want to at least, the pension's not in the corporation. Pension is its own structure. It's funded by, managed by, and sponsored by the corporation in favor of the beneficiary, who is the president, in this case, the doctor, the physician of that professional medicine corporation. So it's not inside the company. And that actually is a, it's a, it's a nuance that shouldn't be, that, that would be a misconception that someone might pick up right out of the gate, which is, oh, well, my pension's in my company. No, it's not. It's a separate legal entity. If there is uh, trouble down the road, unfortunately for you, it's outside the company. It's not a part of the corporate assets and it travels. It's not necessary for a physician, but if you're a business owner and most, I mean, again, physicians really are like business owners, but if you're a business owner and there's a sale of an asset, et cetera, it's very flexible that way as well. So this isn't really that applicable, but but remember it exists outside the corporations, funded by, sponsored by, and managed by the company in favor of the beneficiary, who is in almost all cases of what we're talking about today, either the physician and or their spouse or both and potentially their kids. Wonderful. I, I'm, I'm very glad that you mentioned this last point as well, that yes, it is sponsored it is uh administered by the corporation for, for the beneficiary of the physician and the reason i say this is because it leads down our discussion in part with the concept of the small business allowance and the concept of tax on passive income and also the passive income grind all these three concepts are together and the reason why the concept of the pension is outside of the corporation, not inside of the corporation, is very important to understand. So let's just talk about what is the small business allowance? What is that? Where did it come from? And what is it that we're talking about, in fact? It's kind of like a marginal tax rate in a corporation that qualifies as a small business. And there's 
you know, the definitions are not really relevant to this conversation because any professional medicine, professional dental, professional corporation, any kind of professional corp is going to qualify. Uh, even at the highest end of, you know, income earners, let's say a very, very successful orthodontic practice, I can think of would be probably the highest income earning. It would still qualify for part of its income being at that, at that lower threshold. So just in general, the first $500,000 of income in a corporation that is a qualifying small business company corporation um, will get the first $500,000 of its income at the lowest marginal rate, which in Ontario is around 12%. That's income that you keep in the company and it's net. So it's taxable income, which means after a physician pays him or herself a salary, may pay for the expenses of running their practice, you know, the, the relevant expenses. So it's a net income number that's $500,000 or less. That's that. So if you earn $499,099, so to speak, your taxable income is going to be about, about $60,000. Okay. So... What happens if I earn more than 500? So let's say my taxable income is a million. What 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 is what happens then? So you're then at a higher marginal rate. And yeah, so 20, 26.5. 26.5. Yeah. Plus plus. And there are some other surtaxes that may be charged there as well. What is generally the case, not always, but what is generally the case is. Planning will be done by your accountant to bring you down to the $500,000 net net number um, because paying at that higher rate, uh, again, the principle of equalization in taxes means that at some point down the road, you'll be able to kind of reclaim the tax paid and even, even it out. But it means you must then do certain things on a year over year basis, and that may not be advantageous. So the long story short is it is generally the case that your accountant will recommend that you bonus yourself an income down to that level. It is one of the most effective ways of getting back under that, that amount. So it's just really two marginal rates. It's, uh, and then, and again, corporate tax is um, mountains more complex than individual tax. You have um, eligible and non-eligible income that creates eligible and non-eligible dividends and so on and so forth. And that I think is a little bit beyond the purview of that. What you really want to know is the physician wants to not earn more than $500,000 per year. And then to pull back to some of our previous conversations, there are lots of ways to pull down, bonusing down, creating a pension, making an RSP contribution. Again, not ideal always, but it's an opportunity. There are lots of ways to make sure that that income level is reduced down to that acceptable uh, lower tax rate. It is really the goal of lots of corporate planning once you are earning more than, than that $500,000 threshold after you pay yourself, after all your expenses. So I'll give you an example of what we're talking about. So if a certain doctor, um, I, whatever their specialty, is making, let's say, 800000 Okay, and uh, after deduction of expenses, after deduction of T4 salary, after deduction of, you know, whatever you want to deduct, and let's call it, you know, 650 net. So the the taxable income is, six, is 650. What we're saying is the first 500 is taxed at 12.2%, mm -hmm. and the additional 150,000 is now taxed at 
26.5%. That's that's essentially what we're saying. And Jamie is saying there are ways, there are methods, there are accounting methods, again, all legit, all, all legal uh, methods to try to bring your taxable income to below the 500. And so there are different mechanisms to do that. They're not all possible. Some are possible, some are not. Um, and pensions, why we talked about pensions, because pensions is one of them that allows you to do some of that. Yeah. And maybe too, we should clarify those two tax rates are on active business income. Correct. Correct. Not passive. So if you have investments in your corporation, you can almost think of two separate silos. The first silo is your active income. So your billings to OHIP and other relevant parties. The first $500,000, you'll pay 12.2% tax. The next X number thereafter, you'll pay 26 and a half. And so on the first 500, you pay $60,000. The next 100,000, you'd pay $26,000 of tax. If I have $100,000 investment income, the tax rate in Ontario is about 50%, just around there. And so that is a different, that is accounted for differently. So it doesn't raise or lower the, the active income level. It is, it's, by the way, we're going to talk about, there's a separate thing we're going to talk about later to add complexity, which yeah. is the amount of passive income you earn does grind down what we're talking about at that $500,000 threshold. But assuming there is no passive investment income, the first 500 is 12.2%, the next X uh, is at 26.5 until you earn so much or until you have enough capital in the company where the company no longer qualifies as a small business. Wonderful. We are going to end this part one here after talking about the small business tax allowance. Next, we're going to do part two, and we're going to talk about TOPI, tax on passive income. We're going to talk about the pig, the passive income grind, and how all these three go together. Finally, going to wrap up again with the concept of deemed disposition, but this time for the corporation. Join me in the next episode, part two, where we're going to wrap up our discussion about the lack of education and I wish I knew. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, your colleagues, your pet, your pet turtle and maybe even your neighbor if you like him or her. Uh, if you have any comments, feedback, please email me at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. How is My Financial Health Doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.